It's the story of life. You either never take on anything you haven't already done, in which case you'd be stunted at about age two of total development. That is the essence to me of what life's about. Sometimes people ask me the equivalent of, um, you know, how, the, how do you top that question? I mean, you're an astronaut at 26 and flying in space and spacewalking record at all of age 33. And my God, you know, what do you do then? How do you ever top that? And the answer is, you just got to realize life isn't about topping it. Life is about other things to learn, different things to create, new things to try, new people to meet. And so stay in that mindset of some awareness that you're you're always learning and you're always growing and that on some or other thing, you're absolutely going to be at the early stages of a learning curve and still stubbing a toe or stumbling a little bit here and there. And, and that's okay because it shows you're still alive and engaged and the juices are flowing. I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to KathySullivanExplores.com. Hello, Explorer. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. My name is Toby Goodman, and I've never been to space, let alone walked in it. Neither have I traveled to the deepest point in the ocean. But in the last year, I've been working with a lady who has done that and more. As I record this, Kathy Sullivan is away exploring in an undisclosed location in Europe. But just before she set off, I spoke with her about how she approached her first year as a newbie podcaster, her thoughts on launches, risk, and how she processes her experiences. What's perhaps most remarkable about Kathy is not only what she's achieved, but when that is so mind-blowing. When she joined NASA in 1978, women pretty much made the coffee. By 1984, she became the first American woman to walk in space. Over 35 years later, she becomes literally the world's most vertical person by traveling to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. Her fascination of places and people is both infectious and unending. And with that, it's my pleasure to share this wide-ranging conversation with Dr. Kathy Sullivan. Kathy Sullivan, welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Yay! <laughs> well, first of all, I'm Toby Goodman, and I've been working with you on your amazing podcast. So thanks for trusting me with that. And congratulations on a year of Kathy Sullivan Explores. Yeah, pretty amazing. Thank you for teaching me the ropes and helping me climb that first mountain of the launch batch. It's my pleasure. And I have, if it's okay with you, I have a few general questions. 
first and then some more podcast specific ones. Is that okay? Sure. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, how important you think routine is? Oh, you know, I think I learned in all my flying from youngest days through astronauting that there's a real value to having a certain habit pattern that you you always hold to. It takes, I don't know, it takes some craziness and uncertainty out of the world, adds some assurance, reliability, kind of simplifies my mind. If I know, well, I've, this is always like that. I like that not because I'm hyper into order and rigidity, but it frees me to put my attention on other things. So what I've liked about podcasting so far is that it's a completely different blend of some order and routine and flexibility than I'm used to. So you know, you could step back and say, look, if you're going to do an interview each week, that means you could set it up so that once a month you do, you talk to two people in a week and then you're done. You've loaded it up and off you go. And I found I'm, I'm a little more episodic about that. I'm My routine is sort of make, trying to make sure I'm staying several weeks ahead of the recording need rather than being very rigid about it's the third Thursday of a month. So I must be doing two interviews. That also lets me give some extra flexibility to the people I'm inviting to join me on the podcast. And is that something that's come from, like you said, flying or other work that you've done before just to have a buffer? Because you use the word buffer a lot (laughs) in the conversations that we have. I like it, but you're probably the person that most talks about the importance of the buffer, I think, as much for your own mental health as you know, making sure the podcast's ready to go out. Yeah, it's very much, very much just my comfort factor. But again, it's, uh, it lets me afford more flexibility to guests because, you know, I'm often inviting people who are super, super busy. So it's not going to work to say, Charlie Bolden, I have to have you this particular Thursday because I'm in a bind. It's sort of, it's not his problem that I'm in a bind to have an episode that Thursday. The other thing is it gives me more time and a more relaxed pace to really do some thinking about who is this person and what's interesting to talk with him about. So different ones of my guests, I've done more extensive research. They've got more of an online presence. Uh, so you know, look around on the web and try to find bits about them I wouldn't have known to ask if I just went with what I knew or the resume and information they'd provided when they booked the podcast. And that feeds probably my keenest interest, which is to try to really have the unusual, creative, more insightful question. You know, there's three or four obvious questions you could ask anybody, but that becomes pretty old if that's what each of the guest interviews is about, is just those same three or four questions with a variety of different people. So what is that more interesting angle about this person or a bit of experience that maybe most people if they're a public figure, even maybe most people don't know they had that experience. You know, it's like the party game of name one thing no one in this room would possibly know about you and a bit of surprise that is just fresh insight, really fresh insight on who is this person and how did they how did they get to where they are today? What was the path? Yeah. And I really noticed that as seeing as you just mentioned him with with the Charlie Bolden part one interview that's just gone out, which is I really feel like I'm getting a measure of the human and he's clearly known for being a generous, kind, warm-hearted character. 
But the conversation that you were having about where he came from and the fact that you made the decision that, you know, this is a guy that ran NASA and you could just quickly skip over. So you came from there and then you ended up in NASA. What was that like? And the fact that this is a two-parter because the stories that he's telling about his life as a, a young man, the remarkable stuff about that for me, listening to it, is how strong his mindset is and and how he thinks of himself and the story that he tells about his young life in the segregated South. Incredible and so worth spending time on that part of it rather than skipping over it and saying, well, you're this, so I'm assuming it was awful. And then you became a NASA guy, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess the guest, I, the listener that I have in my mind's eye, the one I'm I think I would say most care about is a younger person, maybe just finishing high school, maybe in college or early career, who you know sees these names in the press, sees the Grammy award-winning DJ or the you know super successful longtime head of NASA, four-time astronaut, and you know it's it just looks like an absolute gulf between where that young person is and these accomplished figures on the world stage and whatever they have in their hearts as an aspiration, you know, all the unknowns about, yeah, but can I do that? I mean, I just, I come from nowhere or I, I'm a welfare mother's kid or, or whatever you are that doesn't seem to align at all with something grand like bringing home a Grammy or running NASA and so to discover that in so many cases, that person who's now so celebrated and so successful started somewhere an awful lot like you. And you know, maybe maybe also had to wrestle with some of those, I'm not really that great a person kind of inner doubts, or maybe got a spark in them the very early on that just blasted them through those sorts of things. But you know. Nobody that you see around you on the world stage or on celebrity pages, none of them started where you see them now. They found their way there. They worked their way there. They promise you stumbled and fell and had setbacks and crashed and burned and probably went through wilderness years of you know, wondering, is this going to work? You know, I, I bet everything on something is going to escape me. Will my dream? You know, that's life. You know, that's part of life. Everyone will encounter in some measure, in some way. So don't freak out about that. If you're feeling that and wondering that, it's because you're human. And here are some examples of how someone else who's made it to a very successful place, how they handled that. How did they navigate that? What did, you know, what did they turn to for comfort or for inspiration when they were feeling the same things you're feeling right now? Right. Thank you for that. We've spent a lot of time thinking about your listener, perhaps more so than a lot of people I work with who are intently building a business using their podcast. You're building a legacy and your intent was immediately to reach more people and people that you couldn't reach just by doing speaking gigs to the lucky few that managed to secure your time and stuff. And so I've been really mindful of that going through. And so I just wanted to take you back to just before maybe we met or around the time we met over a year ago uh, and say, obviously, you're well-versed in launches from space shuttles. <laughs> Got so a few of those. 
a few uh, space shuttles, a few underwater submersibles. Number of airplanes, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, launch them. <laughs> just launch yeah. new things. So my question around that, that was the entertaining segue, uh, segue <laughs> link. But my question is, what is your process and what metrics do you use for making a decision? And how did that apply to you starting your podcast? Yeah, this this has not been an engineering exercise for me. This has been a very you know, organic, motivational sort of thing. I put a book out in 2019 called Handprints on Hubble, which is partly my memoir, but my reason for writing it had nothing to do with some urgent need to have a memoir out there. In fact, it was exactly the opposite. My reason for writing it was because there's a whole chapter of Hubble Space Telescope history that had really never been talked about or written about in the histories or in the popular press. And a whole batch, a large number of people, of, of engineers who were working intensively in that period of time. And what they did was create the foundation and the technical means, the tools and so forth that have let Hubble be repaired and maintained and kept at the cutting edge of technology for now, you know, 32 years, 32 years in April. It was only promised to run for 15 and it's at 32 and it's still doing absolutely cutting edge astronomy because of all the upgrades done along the way. It's probably a thousand times better telescope than when we put it in orbit in 1990. And you know, those people deserve their due. Hubble's not the magical thing it is just because five crews of astronauts went up and fixed it. I mean, they did, and they were indispensable to that. But where did all that come from? Hmm. How was that even possible? And as I, you know, I started peeling into this story. So that was that was really the urge. These are other people that need to be brought to the forefront, put in the enough of a spotlight that they're part of the story, their role in the success is known. It was absolutely pivotal. Um, if you just tell the Hubble story, leaving them out, you'd never really understand what it would take to try to pull off something like that again. And as I dug in, I started researching, because I, I knew you know, the three-sentence, 100,000-foot version of that story. And one of the things that astonished me as I dug into it was how far back in time this idea of fixing a telescope in orbit reached. I mean, things the size of a school bus, not a two-story London double-decker, but easily the bottom story of a double-decker, weighs a bunch, hundreds of miles above the Earth. And the idea of, well, put it up there, started in 1946. There was no such thing as rockets yet or satellites. I mean, there were V2s from the war. Nothing had ever reached orbit. It was, it was years before anything would reach orbit. And here's a bunch of you know, physicists and scientists with tremendous imagination saying, oh man, it could be a big telescope with this big a mirror and, and I can calculate all the magical, wonderful things it would do. Sure, let's do that. And it's the mid-60s when that starts to become a really concrete plan. And the next question becomes, well, yeah, this is going to cost a whole lot. So we can't just be like a one and done. You know, Toby, when you're done taking your measurements, we just retire the thing. This has got to be able to do lots of different investigations. So it's going to have to have lots of different instruments. And like a observatory on a mountaintop, be really good if, you know, when Toby's done, he can pull his instrument off and Kathy can go up the mountain and put her instrument in its place and still use the big mirror over and over again. Well, how do you do that? Oh, well, we'll have astronauts do that in orbit. 
1965. You can count the number of people who've been in orbit on two hands. You don't even need to take your socks off. I think maybe three people had done a spacewalk and two of those had damn near died doing it. And here are these people just saying, well, no problem. These, you know, people, spacesuits, school bus. Yeah, they'll fix it on orbit. Yeah, we can do that. Well, all of that had to be created. And then when this team working sort of in the mid 70s, mid 80s to 1990, when they come along, well, wait, what expertise do they draw on to invent all this stuff? None of them went to a space engineering undergraduate degree. There's no such thing yet. It's decades before there'll be such a thing. Where did they get the skill, the confidence, the insights to even come up with the stuff? And the answer turned out to be cars and motorcycles and trains. And, you know, growing up as young boys, it was all men at the time, in kind of the tinker toy age of taking things apart in your garage or in your, in your basement. So, I mean, that question of what were they drawing on to figure out how to do this? They, they had no directly relevant equal experience drawn. No one on the planet had it. So what did they turn to? to create this stuff. And that that question still fascinates me. Anytime any of us think about doing something bold or daring, it's the sort of, well, can you look around and see some evidence that it can be done that someone else has done before? And if the answer is, yeah, no, no one's ever done this before. Well, then what do you do? Do you drop it and go on to something else that you are sure will work? Or do you really have some drive, some need, some vision that impels you to do what these guys did and say, whoa, no, wait. Yeah. Okay. But, but I'll bet we can figure this out. Let's, let's start trying to figure this out and just keep working your way forward. And I think in so many ways, that's the through line of so many of the conversations I've had with people. Well, no, I didn't have any idea how to do that. I thought, well, well, okay, but, but let's try it or let's figure this out or, well, let's keep going. And What's the worst that can happen here? Yeah, we're embarrassed on stage. Well, okay, that, yeah, that, that'll suck, but we can get through that. And on they go. And you know, that's creativity, right? That's that's inventing and creating. And that's to me the best essence of humanity and human life is that creative and inventive spark. That's one of the things that most surprised me initially and other people when I speak about you is the value someone if you say you know i'm working with an astronaut and you know obviously a scientist then etc cetera, etc cetera, but the value you put on creativity and art and risk and all of those <laughs> all of those things you spend more time talking about that stuff maybe than formulas yeah i mean and the formulas become important at a at key stages in a process right i mean the the numbers in the business plan eventually have to get nailed down and work out. And the numbers in a design have to get finalized and refined. And precision matters a lot in some cases, a little less in other cases. But you get to that brass tax moment when you've got to lay all that in. But a whole lot of what makes the whole enterprise possible happens when that stuff is still very vague or you can roughly see it's going to be this big or have to weigh that much, but you don't know enough yet to get to exactly what does it have to be. And again, with something like Hubble or any of our space flights, you're not going to get to that 
correct final number by looking it up somewhere. It doesn't exist anywhere. You're the first person doing this. I remember in the latter stages of completing my doctoral work, I had you know mapped a portion of the seafloor off eastern Canada that never had been examined in great detail. And of course, that doing the map stuff is sort of this, the technical map it all out, get all the lines correct and so forth. And then the other scientific part is, well, what do those maps tell you about how this place came into being? And this is a part of the ocean that used to connect to the parts of the ocean off Spain and France. So I spent a lot of time in the science libraries reading every research paper I could find about the areas of Canada near mine and the matching areas on the other side and you know, looking for evidence people had already found that I would have to account for. My conjecture how this came about has to match with what you found off Spain and what was found you know, north or south of where, my, where I'm working. And I, it was like just about midnight one night, and I'd been in the science library, I don't know how many hours, I had books piled up all around me, trying to find a paper that validated, that kind of confirmed the idea I had in my head about what these patterns I had found must mean. And I realized you can just stop reading any of the journals. Just stop. There's not an answer. You're being like a high schooler, trying to find the place in the textbook where it confirms what the answer is. There's no answer guide here. No one has ever asked the question you're asking. No one has ever had the data in front of them that you have. No one's been on this ground ever before. And I I mean, this visual metaphor popped into my head of being out cross-country skiing, you know, following a, an existing track through a forest and suddenly reaching the edge of a clearing where there were no tracks in the snow ahead of me. There is nobody to follow. The time has come for you to break new ground. And it was at the same time kind of the most exciting and exhilarating and frightening kind of frightening moment of, wait, my ideas? Oh, my goodness. And that's just in a library, right? And that's just in a library, yeah. You know, you've been to space and you've been deep, deep underwater, as deep as anyone could go. How do you manage fear? I honestly can say I've never felt that sort of cold slug of trembling fear. I've done a lot of things that can be dangerous, that can be risky, the systems I've dived in and flown in, there are ways they can fail. And I'm just so curious and driven by the opportunity to be in those unique environments and do the kinds of studies and inquiries and learnings and exploring that a space shuttle or a submersible let us do. I just get absorbed in the being there and then you know, thinking through how is this going to work? What do we do if, you know, what do I need to know in case? And then just go and do it. And I think I can trace threads back to very early, very simple, you know, knee scraping level of hazard childhood experiences where I was given the latitude to go do those simple little kid explorations and to discover your knee is scraped up and it'll heal and that's not too bad. And what'd you learn from that? And kind of develop the mindset and the problem-solving mental muscles of encountering something new or unexpected. And instead of going, ah, ah, you know, ah, get me out of here, sort of going, oh, okay, uh, we weren't expecting that. 
let's think about that. What do we do about that? And lean in and and have some some confidence that my reasoning, my knowledge, my skills, and those of the team of people around me, we will figure out a way to adjust and adapt and recuperate, or you know, or punch out, you know, bail out, abort the mission, come back to the surface, stop the dive. How many dives have you stopped? Um, I've stopped a couple of just recreational scuba dives, a couple of cases of hopping in the water and discovering the current was actually stronger than our test from the surface indicated and kind of quickly knew it's beyond some of our swimmers' skills. So it's not smart to do this. Let's just stop and regroup. So there is obviously something that kicks in to tell you to stop. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes it's just you know, an unknown. I mean, I was going to hop off in a little airplane with a friend one evening just to go get a hamburger for dinner. And in the cockpit, we power up the airplane. I'm doing the checks that you always do before you take off in an airplane. And there's one particular check of the engine that I did. These engines have two ignition systems. And there's a simple check you do to make sure they're both actually working. And it appeared one of them wasn't working. And I couldn't suss out why. I couldn't see anything that I'd done wrong. And so I just, well, we're not going because that one's not working. And that was an evening flight. So it was a little dark in the cockpit. I went out to the airplane the next day to try to figure that out. And it turns out I had just been putting a switch in the wrong position. The ignition was fine. I was making a mistake, but I couldn't see that and confirm it the evening we were going to go fly. So we didn't go fly. Right. So checklists and preparation, all of times like that, that, you know, checklists, and that in that case with little airplanes, it's a checklist that backs up my habit pattern because you know, like anything, you get sort of in a rhythm and a pattern of the things you check before you go. And you just keep that checklist nearby to make sure that you know on that day something doesn't happen to distract you or intervene and or be on your mind and you end up skipping a step without realizing you've skipped a step. Are there commonalities in how you prepare for other things other than space flight and dives to their behaviors and habits you have around prep? Yeah. I, you know, I think there's a lot of commonality, even down to, you know, I'm heading off in a couple of days on vacation with some friends and, you know, because <laughs> we're traveling as a small cluster of friends. It's been interesting to kind of tell from the chatter amongst us, you get some real insights about the, the differing ways people prepare for a simple vacation where the biggest thing that could go wrong is you forgot your swimsuit or something. But my mind tends to start well ahead of an event and some almost some background thinking that it's kind of like choreography. There's a high level basic flow of what we're going to do and how it's how many days of this and that gets in my head. And I will go days of just sort of trickling through, ah, that's right. I need this. And I accumulate all the stuff in a certain place in my bedroom and find myself going through multiple layers episodically of, ah, you were about to forget that. So I do a long, like multiple layers of paint over you know, weeks before going. And it's not a sit down effort and it's not a write everything down kind of exercise, although your various notes get scribbled at different times. But in that case, it's not. I have a packing checklist that I always get out seven days before my vacation, and I go through very methodically, and it's on my closet wall. It's not. It's just not that kind of process for me, explicitly. But it's it's sort of viscerally that kind of process, and it's just it just starts happening without without my even thinking about it. 
And I suppose that is a result of a lifetime of having to plan for big projects, right? So yeah. you, you treat those things. So then how do you deal with, I mean, obviously there is the abort story that you just told me. <laughs> it was like, you just don't do it. But then how do you deal with unexpected surprises, whether they're in a space shuttle or, you know, on a phone call or whatever it might be? Yeah. You recognize any behaviors that you have around just basically versions of crisis management. Do you have habits that you've created around that? Because I imagine you are taught to deal with if then situations when you're in the air or in space or, or whatever. Yeah, and I think the most important thing in all of those cases is to, in, in that moment, first and foremost, try to get very clear-minded about what's the most important thing to hold on to as we solve this. So, I don't know, it might be, let's go back to the vacation example and, you know, flight cancels or this or that or something comes up. Okay, so, you know, you're not going to get to wherever quite the way you had planned you can take that first setback and say, right, cancel the whole trip. Certainly can do that. But this is just a question of, do I get there today or tomorrow? I mean, what's the max consequence here? I'm inconvenienced. It's annoying. It's kind of chaotic. I can't get there today as I had planned. Okay. Does anybody die if you don't get there today? So you get there tomorrow. Okay. So you get there tomorrow. Still got 10 days of your vacation left little bit of disappointment. Maybe you had a grand dinner plan that night. Okay. But none of, none of that deeply matters. And so the quicker you can let go, spot and let go of those things that, or, you know, put them in the proper bin in your mind. Those, those are annoyances and disappointments. And, you know, Toby, when I get back, I'll buy you a beer and I'll tell you all about the annoyances and disappointments of the trip. But in the moment, there's no point spending a lot of my mental energy on the annoyances and disappointments. My focus would be, okay, what's the best flight I can get the next day? What's the soonest I can get there, given that it's not the way I planned? What's that next best choice? My, my priority in the moment is, but I do want to get there. What's the next best way to get there? And then we'll go to the bar and grouse over the annoyances over a beer. But you know, so many people just get swamped by the tidal wave of their annoyance and their anger and their frustration. I don't know. It's just, it's a kind of undisciplined self-indulgence, I guess, that if you're, if it's just your vacation to France, it doesn't matter if you indulge in that, but if it's an airplane or a spaceship or a submersible, you need to drop your favorite things very quickly to restore your focus on what's really important here. What's really important is stay alive, get the mission done. There was a purpose to going to the bottom of the Marianas Trench or up in space. It wasn't just a lark. So, First thing is make sure we're com still coming back alive. Second thing is, and how do we get as much of the work done as we meant to do, given that we now don't have that option? How do we keep on as close to the objective we had as possible, given this change of circumstance? And everything that does not answer that question, drop it quickly. Mm. There are a few times in your life when you have experienced, or not yourself, because you're still alive, but you've been <laughs> around and you've known people to have lost their lives and you've experienced projects that have appeared to have failed. And I'm thinking about the mirrors on Hubble the first time, like those things, some are tragic and, and cannot be fixed or solved in any real way. Others, when I think about Hubble, obviously we, 
we found out that you can go and repair it and change it, which is exciting. But in that moment, in the moment where you're maybe not sure that that's possible, how do you process versions of either tragedy or or failure? How do you deal with that? Yeah, those those are absolutely horribly hard moments. And I remember vividly the way it felt and how long it felt bad after both Challenger and the discovery of, of Hubble. You know, in both cases, there was definitely a strong thread and current of how did this happen? You know, who did who did what? Who somebody missed something or somebody did something deliberately one way or the other. We're NASA. We did this. How did we do this? You wanting to get to the bottom of that. In the case of Hubble, getting to the bottom of how did we do this mainly mattered. I mean, it pretty quickly became kind of a parallel track to what do we do about it? What do we do about it is a different question than how did we get here? I mean, you've got to recognize those are, they're going to cross tremendously with all the emotions that are in play in the moment, but they are two different questions. And you want to be able to get a focus on both of them, but not get them too much polluting each other. So the primary value of digging into how the hell did this happen on Hubble was the discovery that the way the error got introduced meant that it was a very, very precise error. So, okay, the bad news is you screwed up. The good news is you screwed up very precisely. It's not like somebody dropped something on the mirror and there's one big ding in it. It was ground to a very precise shape, but that shape was just slightly not what it was meant to be. Just for the courtesy of people who haven't read your book and understood what we're talking about, what was the apparent terrible failure of the Hubble telescope? Yeah. So the main mirror in a telescope like Hubble is it's convex. It's a little bit of bowl shaped so that all the light comes in, gets focused to a very tight single point. And the mirror on Hubble it's, is eight feet, 2.4 meters diameter. It was a little too flat at the edges. So not, not quite steep enough a bowl to get all that light to as tight a point as was needed. Over eight feet, how much is not quite? And it was like the thickness of one page in a book or you know, a fraction of a human hair. So astonishingly tiny, but well within the range of what can be done, what's routinely done in making mirrors for astronomy. So it's kind of a no, it's a no excuse mistake. You're supposed to be able to perform at that level, have done in the past, but you didn't this time. And the result being? So the result being Hubble had blurry images. It couldn't focus properly. But the fact that it was a very precise error meant that you could you could handle it in much the same way your eye doctor handles your eye not being quite the shape it ought to be, which is I can measure your eye, calculate what its shape is, and that's what results in you having the blurry vision. And I can compare that to the ideal shape that would give you sharp vision. And I can fashion that difference into a pair of spectacles for humans in Hubble's case, they did the same kind of existing to ideal comparison and fashioned the correction into mirrors instead of other lenses and came up with a way to build those mirrors into a refrigerator-sized box that could go into the same place that one of the science instruments had been and intercept the 
fuzzy light coming off the big mirror and bounced it around enough that it turned into good light. And as instruments got individually swapped and upgraded over the years, they built that same correction into each instrument rather than sacrificing one of the instrument spots. But at the start of that process, you know, there's so one a separate team was digging into how the hell did this happen? You know, there's contracts and legal obligations and money and political thrashing around that question. So you lot go over and tackle that one. You guys, more the engineering types, the hell are we going to do about it? And they just went into a massive, as a large team of people, they went into an absolutely massive whiteboard exercise for an extended period of time with the ground rule of nobody poo-poos any idea. This is just get every every even faintly conceivable idea on the board. So there's no killer sentences in this phase. However idiotic you think Kathy's idea is, shut up, goes on the wall. And then successfully started digging into, yeah, but how could that really work? Could you actually send astronauts in spacesuits down the barrel of the telescope to polish or fix the lens? When they realized the mistake was it was too flat, they said, well, no, because no, you can't reshape the whole thing. And there are a bunch of other reasons why as well. But when it was confirmed that the error was actually quite precise, that fed into the what do we do about it campaign and created this notion of eyeglasses. And then the question was, yeah, well, okay, how, how do you get that correction? Could you do it by putting eyeglasses on the front? How, would you, how do you get that correction into the telescope? And if it's a bunch of different mirrors, how do you get them in all into the right place? And it's uh, the break. <laughs> I, I do tell this story in the book, the breakthrough flash of insight of all things. is an American engineer taking a shower in his hotel room in Holland one morning before the next round of meetings, thinking about this problem of it could be it would be six or eight mirrors. And how do you get them into the right place in the telescope and perfectly positioned and He's in a classic European shower with a movable shower head to go up and down a rod and tilt and change. And he's adjust, he's really tall. So he's adjusting that shower head and it dawns on him. That's the way we do it. We need a rod that we can move the mirrors up and down. Da, 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 da. And we have some big boxes that sit at exactly the right place for that big rod. We just pull one of those boxes out and put a different one in. So of all things, after all the grinding and pounding of your engineering brain, it was this morning shower aha moment that unlocked the door. And showers apparently are the best place to have. Clearly. <laughs> That's really cool. Tell me about after years of being interviewed, what it was like to become the interviewer. Well, it's quite fun, I have to say. And it made me think back to all the different interviews I've done and the ones that were just you know, absolutely mundane, the same six questions that 500 other people have asked, not even in mildly different form. And then other interviews, I've maybe seen somebody do, I mean, the great actors studio interviews that ran on our television for a long time that were, I mean, they, they to me were just marvelous. And I took a lot of inspiration and challenged myself in that same vein. I mean, I'm going to forget the interviewer's name, James something, shame on me. But you know, here he's sitting on stage very casually with the likes of Dame Judi Dench or magical figures of the stage and the screen and kind of not talking about, well, what was it like to kiss Bogart, but it, about just so many more interesting dimensions to me of who they were as a person and what it's like to live a life in that craft or 
what's it like for you to create a character and how, how do you inhabit a character? And you, can you turn it off? Like as soon as the director says cut, it's like, boom, you're back to being just Toby. Or does that character stay with you? You keep your head in it through the whole show, the whole filming. And are there pieces of characters you've done that follow you and are still with you today? I mean, I just found those questions fascinating. So that was kind of my, my ideal benchmark to try to be as prepared and as insightful with questions as a really superb interviewer like that is. I doubt I've ever come even faintly close to that level of skill, but you know, to be fair, he's also often interviewing people about whom there's two or three or four biographies to, to read through and a, you know, a lot of background material to gain on them. And I'm interviewing people who may, some have had a fairly substantial web presence or book out and others are very public in their own arena. Yvette McGee Brown, our um, former Supreme Court justice, for example, is very well known in Ohio and in legal circles, but doesn't have some big persona online, is not a massive social media person. So you hit that one in a different way, right? You can't have mined all those sources for little nuggets that she forgot she told anybody. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's clear that you do a lot of as much research as you can and you think mindfully about the questions and with actors, that's right. You know, who are they? Who are they really? Is a yeah. great question, isn't yeah. it? You know, to try to work out all of that stuff. But one of those questions that you just talking about kind of related to a question I had for you, which is, you know, we've spoken about the the routine and the prepping and the planning. And I also wonder with you, again, it could be space or it could be a big project or it could be a podcast interview. Do you have a process or a way or can you share your thoughts about the unwinding period after you've done something significant? Where do you build in white space? Because you are, you know, everything you're saying to me and everything that I've learned about you, and we've spent a lot of time together, is that you just do the thing. <laughs> you know, like you're the, yeah, and you've said, you know, even in one of your solo shows, which we'll talk about in a minute, you've talked about, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing, and just what can I do? What can I do now? What can we do? What can I do? Let's move on. And it's all like, that's who you are. And it's incredible. But then the other part of me thinks, I know enough about you to know that you also like to have a lot of fun and relax. What does the join look like between Kathy, the, the person who's like doing something insane, like walking in space to getting over that and get, getting over, you know, a big space flight, getting over a big project for a president or whatever it might be doing. Is there a system that you have for unwinding or anything like that? I don't think there's a system. It's, uh, you know, that what do we need to do? Are we done circuit that runs you know, pretty incessantly till like the last bow is tied and everything is really buttoned up. And then, you know, and the experience certainly varies from a space flight to, you know, a big project like writing something like writing the book or, you know, finishing something report, you know, you get to a point where it's done. It's what you're going to submit and turn in. You know, that's just to me a nice sort of pretty clean moment of I've done my bit. I've done all I can do of my bit. It's now in you know the editor's hands or whoever's hands. And and it may come back to me for some tweaks or revisions or something else, but switch off, you know, clear end. Now you can really, really just you know, unwind, relax, you can go for a walk, take out the dogs, 
dive into a book. I do find after any really intense project, I mean, I'm a very avid reader, but uh, as a rule, after any really intense project that's taken my whole mind, there's a period of time I I really can't just pick up a book and read again. There's still some, I guess, back processing happening that's occupying my brain without my being really quite aware of it. So I'm, you know, I'm best off just go out and hang with some friends or chill around the house or just, if it's me, do the household chores that you've been completely neglecting while you were intensely focused on, on getting the project work done. I mean, the experience coming out of something like a space shuttle is it's really very different because you're, you know, there's a, a very long funnel that funnels you into the five or 10 days, in my case, of a shuttle flight. And that that long funnel is it's it is like its own version of climbing a mountain. It's ever more intense training and preparation that's ever more concentrated and focused on just the specifics of your flight. So the last month or so before a flight, you were almost living the flight already in you know 12 or 18 hour chunks on the ground in simulators. And it's kind of everything else in the world around you tends to fall away and become very secondary. And a whole world of resources is devoted to you. Having the simulator ready, having an airplane ready if you need it, getting a, an appointment with the flight medic right away if you need it. So you guys are first in line. Everything is devoted to getting you up through this final bit and ready for flight. And the moment you know when a shuttle would ignite its engines and start to rise off the launch pad, there was a split second where the back end of the orbiter would pass the top of the launch pad. It was called tower clear. And at that moment, all the work of the Kennedy Space Center on that flight was done and Houston was in control. And at that same moment, somewhere in the astronaut office, a crew of people would be sitting around who were the next in line after you. And as soon as that moment happened, they would stand up and say, we're prime crew. I mean, you've now got your team, you're off executing the mission. I'm next. Everything's now about me. And it was always a moment you looked forward to. You're close to actually going, all sorts of great things. And so when you come home from a space flight, you've been in this, you know, focused on you funnel for months, if not a year. And as soon as you land, it's like, yeah, well, that was fun. We got someone else to work for. See you later. Bye. And so uh, all the preparation you have getting ready to go, there's like, no formal preparation or kind of landing pad when you come back. It's just, oh, good, you're home. Thanks. With that job particularly, you've got then to do the rounds with the various places that want to do media with you or, or whatever it yeah, might well, be. Yeah, and there's, well, and there's an equally large slate of technical debriefs, but your schedule, your pace leading up to the flight and in flight has been all absorbing hyper intense. Right. And suddenly you're home and there's, you know, three meetings a day or something like that. And it feels it feels positively disorienting. And you're looking at pictures of you in space, pictures, you know, you took in space and it's suddenly so alien. It's sort of like, shouldn't this feel different? And I'm looking at a picture I know I took in space and I kind of can't. It feels like someone else took the picture. How, you know, it's, it's just that kind of schism between the every the everyday life you're now back into and this extraordinary life you were involved in running up to the flight and during the flight. What you have is on each occasion, you have a group of people that you were there with. And so you get to like 
decompress with those people privately. And that's kind of what it is. It's that debriefing time frame, and even to some degree, the interview rounds. But it, you know, the debriefing time frame is really a set of conversations among the people you did this with. But then you've got time because you're not in a space shuttle. There comes a point in your day where you go to your room and you close the door and you lie down, but you're not quite asleep yet. And you're thinking of all those, all of those things. And there's, there's a lot of processing. Yeah, absolutely. That's still going on. And I imagine still goes on today, right? If you take 10 minutes out of your day to just sit there and think about what you've done, it potentially can be overwhelming or whatever, but there's still something about you as a character that will, is looking for the next thing. That was my interest is like, how do you mentally deal with knowing that you've done what you've done and then still carry on in a, in a good way? Because there's just so much there. And then also the, the funny thing that I found out about you by accident when we spoke a few weeks ago was, was I think we were talking about traveling in a plane post-COVID flight. And you immediately said, oh, I don't have a problem falling asleep. <laughs> <laughs> like I've never had a problem falling asleep, which to me is like, obviously, A, I'm jealous, but B, you have a skill to to shut off. And does that come from some sort of training or has that always been there? I think a lot of it is sort of always been there. But, you know, part of what that means is that I'm sure is elements of lessons or insights that my parents planted in me way, way, way back when. Yeah, it just, uh, I don't know. I reflect back and I call back to mind the kind of crazy things I've done on a lot of occasions. You know, someone tells a bit of a story or you see something in the media or space images are very popular in advertisements, things like that. And you see one of those and remember, I remember what that looks like. Or in, in one instance, I was coming back from, I think, from overseas through some other airport into the United States. And in the luggage area, there was this massive, huge, big, really dramatic image taken from orbit, clearly a, a shuttle image that was the backdrop of this airline's whole big counter area. And I looked at that and said, we took that picture on my second flight. And of course, my traveling mates looked at me like, yeah, like everyone does that, right? Just, uh-huh. So I, you know, it pops up at all sorts of interesting moments or, you know, I meet someone from a what to an American is a very remote country like Tibet or Afghanistan or something. And I could call to mind basically all of Afghanistan because it, as a space shuttle goes over, you see all of Afghanistan and the surrounding territory in a matter of minutes. And I mean, I've never been there. I've not been on the ground. I haven't gotten dust in my boots or tasted their food or experienced their culture, but I know Afghanistan in a really unique, odd way. And, and as a geologist and person really you know, motivated, inspired by landforms and geographies, that's to me the most valuable underpinning kind of knowing a place is to understand its land. And so that becomes really interesting. And you, know, you can be chatting with a cabbie and they say, oh, I'm from Afghanistan. Oh, I, and this happened to me once from Afghanistan. Oh, what part? Up by the gorgeous mountains in the north? Oh, you know my country. Well, we'll sort of know your country. <laughs> I've seen more of your country than you have. I promise you that. But I don't, right. <laughs> I don't know it in the same way you do. And yet people are, are still obviously so important to you, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, I've, I've absolutely seen more of England than you've seen because I've seen all of England all and England. it looks out my office window and Scotland and Wales and Ireland at, at the same time. Yeah, that's very cool, isn't it? And you have tasted our food. <laughs> yes. So you've done 61 episodes of Kathy Sullivan Explores. Give me one sentence answers about maybe memories of conversations that you've had with these people. So we'll just go through. So episode 43, you spoke to a Brit, I believe, called Helen Scales. What's your memory of speaking with her? She dialed in from a staircase in her small house surrounded by books and had grand stories to tell. I particularly liked her story about the first time she met a seahorse. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Your first conversation actually was with Morgan Smith. An extraordinary mind in a young person. Right. So my, my real one-liner of Morgan Smith is, what other 25-year-old says nonchalantly, or what other 25-year-old off the top of her head makes precise references to the text of the Odyssey, knowing it by chapter number? Oh, yeah, right. Oh, no, it was chapter 14. What? <laughs> and then you spoke on episode three, you spoke with Bill Nye, who is kind of a famous character in America. Not so much here. There's a famous actor called Bill Nye here, which is like, what? Uh, it's, no, it's not that one. So Bill Nye, the science guy who you've known for a long time. Was there anything that you picked up from that conversation that you didn't know before or what's your memory of that? I didn't realize he'd really gotten his start into being Bill Nye the Science Guy on a stand-up comic contest. Ah. That was his pivot from being an aerospace engineer into being the persona he is now. That's cool. You mentioned her earlier, Yvette McGee-Brown. I knew nothing about her pathway to becoming the really very accomplished person I know today. Poor single mother, segregated side of Columbus to Supreme Court justice. I mean, that's a road. Incredible. Oh, who else have we got? Mutual friend. We should give her a shout out, shouldn't we? Dana Steele. Dana, original spark plug of the whole podcast, which had spent some time percolating in my brain as possibly a book idea and some young friends and associates I shared it with. They loved the idea, but said, well, why not? Have you thought about maybe a podcast? Which I hadn't, of course. I know nothing about podcasting, but I knew that Dana had a podcast. So I emailed Dana with essentially what I just said to you. I was thinking book. They suggested podcast. What the hell's a podcast? And here we are. Yeah, she's good. You did a two-parter with Homer Hickam. Uh, Homer. Just before I interviewed him on the podcast, he had shared with me the galley proofs of his memoir titled Don't Blow Yourself Up, which just told me so, so, so much more about, again, his pathway from being the little boy in the movie October Sky to being the guy I met at NASA in 1985 or so. And they were great double episode, worthy double episode. Uh, more recently, you spoke with Jerry Griffin. Tell me what that conversation was like. 
Jerry Griffin was a senior NASA guy, long career at NASA, engineer, aeronautical engineer. And when I encountered him, he was leading the Johnson Space Center. So he was our boss boss. But probably his greater claim to fame generally, and certainly one of the things he's proudest of, is he was a flight director. So the, the orchestra conductor of all of mission control. He worked every single Apollo flight, and he was one of the lead flight directors during Apollo 13. So, the, you know, the movie Apollo 13 shows Eugene Krantz as like the king of the mountain. Mission control is always working in shifts. There's at least three teams, usually four teams, working together to funnel all the information in the right direction. Jerry was one of those, uh, and getting his experiences of Apollo 13 would Fascinating. And he was a technical consultant on the movie Apollo 13. So getting his stories about working with you know Tom Hanks and company on producing the movie was really great. Yeah. Yeah, there was loads in there. And then your your most recent two, let's go for so a really lovely chat with Katie Smith, Olympic gold medalist. How was that conversation? Because there's another high-performing woman who you wouldn't have worked with or anything like that but the way that she spoke about performance and her almost her intent to get the job done there's a lot of <laughs> there are a lot of similarities between her mindset and yours I would suggest yeah I think absolutely and you know Katie three people in particular three guests I've spoken to that come from itsy bitsy little tiny towns in southern Ohio that are just, you know, you would say, you know, no great shakes of places. You got to kind of wonder if, are the schools any good? What can anybody become who grows up in those little places? Katie's one of those and just became great at basketball. She's all brothers. So she, she grew up being around a bunch of guys and playing with them and picking up some of the, the lessons of that sort of competitive play with the, her siblings. Loved basketball was a really star player at Ohio State University for years. And in fact, in the whole intercollegiate league in the United States for a while there, anyway, she was the all-around, all-time highest ever point scorer, period, male or female, in intercollegiate basketball. Went on to the Olympics a couple times, a couple gold medals, and is now coaching. And I think that's the thing I found most interesting from her was the turning it inside out experience of having been a player for a long time under a lot of different coaches, I imagine a lot of different styles. Most of her coach, most of her coaches were men and then becoming a coach herself. What is that transformation? What is that change in mental mapping? And, and I was curious about what, again, with all the personality and coaching styles, I imagine she's seen, you know, what has she taken? What has she built? as her style of leadership and coaching and her take, you know, it's a conventional piece of very common wisdom, maybe globally, but certainly in business and other circles in the United States, that competition is essentially the one and only one way. It is the best, if not the only way to really get the best out of people. You pit people against each other. You, it's not just challenge them to meet a goal, but very much create a competitive environment. That gets the juices going. That gets everybody really fired up. That's what gets the best out of people. I've not found that to be universally true. If you put me in an environment where you're deliberately pitting me against another person with you know high sort of hunger games, kind of who's going to live or die, 
I don't thrive in that environment. You are not going to get the best out of me in that environment. You're welcome to conclude that means I'm deficient in some way, but all of the potential and capability I have, you're not going to see. Yeah. That's the climate you set. And, and so I was curious with Katie, who's probably seen many coaches who work with that motif, where did she end up in terms of her views on methods and leadership styles that bring the best out of a group of people who are, you know, who are all volunteers. They're, they may be on a contract, but they're playing that sport because they want to be playing that sport. And, you know, the celebrity player is a celebrity player. They can market themselves anywhere. So really what kind of leverage do you think you have over them as a coach? They just, they just walk if they want to probably. So how do you manage all that? Yeah. I mean, there's some such great conversations that you've had across the board about leadership and how people show up as leaders and how people, you know, is it the carrot or the stick? And the conversation with Raynaud Ashleyman about the more collaborative and compassionate sort of style rather than the competitive style of leadership. All of that stuff, it's such a rich catalogue of things. Yeah. Raynaud's emphasis on collaborative style, I mean, I, I, did, I really didn't know the big story of the Swatch company until I got to know him and the Omega company. I mean, Swatch to me was just one brand of watch you saw in the cases at a store. It was not some... There's nothing bigger to it. I didn't. I didn't realize it stood for Swiss watches, not just that particular brand of colorful watches on the shelf. And the story of that whole Swiss watch industry essentially being saved from near extinction as quartz watches became the thing in the 80s. I didn't know that at all, and I was delighted. I, I suppose it was self-indulgent, you know, confirmation that. The secrets making it all work and keeping it alive and, and making it the Swatch empire it is today, with many brands under that umbrella, including Omega and others, the secret there was to see it as a collaborative that let all the companies thrive instead of just you know, a competitive Roman forum where the lion's going to get some of you. Yeah. Wow. So then let's briefly talk about the other part of your podcast, which has been your solo shows. And you've got these, you know, you've written the book, but there were things that are not in the book. And there's many more to come of small parts of your life where you're sharing incredible stories from the people you've met to the things that you've done and places you've been and all of that stuff. And I think quite recently we've we've really started to hone those and try and make them as meaningful as possible to the listener and give them a sense of utility because you're not like a you're the least braggy person I've ever met and yet you've probably got the most license to be braggy and you're you're not like that but we're trying to every time we create a solo episode we're trying to create a story that it's obviously it's fun it's entertaining but it also has meaning and it gives people at least pause for thought and oftentimes maybe an action to take or something. So how do you feel like your solo episode chops have um, <laughs> improved? Because I, I really enjoy those. I think they're really good. And the feedback of those short stories are always incredible. I think my chops have improved because I was smart enough to engage you to help me learn and make them better. And that's one of the things I most value about working specifically with you, Toby, is I'm not a braggy person. And there are little tidbits in some, if I start telling some story or talking about something I've done, 
one of the things you've been really helpful with is stopping me and say, wait, 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 that bit there. Tell me more about that, which I would some little detail that I would probably just blow right by and think nothing of that you recognize as a, a nugget or a bit that's worth expanding on because it's because it is amusing or it is intriguing or it may have some offer some real insight to people who are listening because I'm really quite blind to those in a lot of cases. And then helping me keep in mind that I'm talking to one person at a time in this podcast and you know, to try to really work on, on making it be like what we're doing here, sitting together and having a chat, not me at a podium delivering some lecture or laying out some expose of explanation of what I did. So to take that angle on it and really be thoughtful about keeping that tone and that cadence and mixture of just sharing a story with a good friend. And then you know, it's hard to turn the telescope the other way around. And this is where I suppose the, the brag part comes in is, well, it was, yeah, it was my story. And that's what it's, if it's interesting, it's my story. That's great. But you, you were very good at poking me to see the value that others might find in the story I just told beyond just a chuckle. And maybe a little something they tuck in the back of their head and it marinates for a long time, infusing them with some new bits of insight or inspiration, or maybe a specific aha or a specific, oh, well, yeah, I'll try that. So that, I mean, all of that mindset is new to me and fun to play with and experiment with. And I do write those out so I don't bumble and stumble too much and make life an absolute misery for Iris, my sound editor. And that's a challenge too, because when I go into writing mode, I tend to go into my very best stern erudite editor mode. And that's not the kind of bits these things want to be. So it's kind of helping me develop some different writing muscles even, which is fun. Yeah. Well, practice is, as I've started to uh, say to a lot of people recently, you know, and practice isn't sexy, but it's it's the thing <laughs> that we all need yeah. to do. And there's no shortcut. And just, just watching someone who has worked at the level that you've worked at and continue to work at today come into something as, as someone who's said, look, you know, I've never done this before and I'm here to learn and, and I want to get better at it, but also the awareness that you were never going to start at a place where you are now, which is 61 episodes in, which is just way more fluent in the medium, understanding that you can have fun with it, play with it. And all of that, you just knew from a life of being well-practiced at a number of things that it was going to be a practice. And that's the joy of working with you is knowing that you're always here to just kind of improve and tweak and refine, which is, you know, the story of the Hubble telescope, the story of who you are to your core. So that that's why it's such a unique, just to be with a world-class performer that, that understands the art of practice for me is, it's just an incredible privilege. It's the story of life. I mean, yeah, it's the story of life. Unless you're just going to sit and vegetate, you always start at the bottom of a hill. You either never take on anything you haven't already done, in which case you'll be stunted at about age two of total development. That is the essence to me of what life's about. Sometimes people ask me the equivalent of, um, you know, how, the, how do you top that question? I mean, you're an astronaut at 26 and flying in space and spacewalking record at all of age 33. And my God, you know, what do you do then? How do you ever top that? And the answer is, you just got to realize life isn't about topping it. Life is about other things to learn, different things to create, new things to try, new people to meet. And so stay in that mindset of 
some awareness that you're you're always learning and you're always growing and that on some or other thing you're absolutely going to be at the early stages of a learning curve and and still stubbing a toe or stumbling a little bit here and there. And, and that's okay because it shows you're still alive and engaged and the juices are flowing. And I mean, my God, at age 70, you can learn how to do podcasts, like flat out completely learn how to do podcasts. At, all dogs really can take on some new tricks now and then and even become decently good at them. Yeah, it's amazing. I'm really proud of my small part in it. And um you know, I have a feeling that there's, yeah, there's some really interesting and exciting stuff that will come from it that is already coming from it. And um, yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a good ride so far and more to come. Awesome. Thanks, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.